0: Blog Talk Radio Yeah. Uh. Everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for HD Live is brought to you by Help for HD International and is made possible by our sponsor, the Griffin Foundation, and an education grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals. Today, we are going to be talking about challenges in placing our loved ones with HD. Um, we are very lucky at Help for HD International that we have Katrina Hamill for so many different reasons, but one thing that we always lean on her for is her background in hospice care and her amazing knowledge in care facilities because she has done it for literally half of her life so um, I am excited to have her on the show today we talk uh, together about this subject all the time one-on-one so to bring some of her knowledge and some things that um, how she feels about this kind of space is excited to bring it I'm um, excited to bring it on the air and talk about the um, also the article that just came out so welcome to the show Katrina and let's jump right in and you tell us about your background in hospice care and care facilities. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, I just, I started as a teenager with, you know, ill family members, you know, both with Huntington's and other diseases, um, as as most families have. Um, <clears throat> and it just, it started from there. I would help and assist other family members with caring for our loved ones. And slowly that graduated into um, wanting to go into some type of medical field. I did some medical assisting, courses and and things like that. But really where my experience came from was hands-on experience um, in care homes. And I started out doing um, Alzheimer's and dementia care, which also um, was in a care home that um, took people to the end of their lives. And in that process, I learned how um, interested I was in hospice care just because of how – you know everyone dies and that's something to always in mind that this isn't just about Huntington's disease or just about my loved one that everyone will end up dying and there's different obvious ways that that can happen um so my background has been through like I said the Alzheimer's and dementia care and then I had my own in-home care um I wouldn't want to call it necessarily a company, but we were a support for families in our local area that um, would connect them with, with caregivers that were experienced. And then after that point I moved on to a facility that was strictly hospice care, and this was hospice care for families that were of low income. And um, it was it was the best decade of my life for sure as far as things that i was able to experience and um, things that I learned. Um, and, and I learned about um, compassion and, you know, empathy and all sorts of different diseases and, and also ways to kind of help families get their way into care homes or get their way into our care home. We, we really tried hard to make it work for everyone. So I have a bit of a varied background in um, care homes and, and hospice care.
0: Yeah, and then in your your last um, uh, home you worked in, I remember you, because we were obviously working, we were volunteering for Help for HD
1: together at that time. I remembered you had people right. with HD
0: in that facility.
1: Absolutely. So um, it was interesting to me because I my, my first hands-on experience with somebody other than a family member was at a place I managed um, or assisted manager for um, hospice care. And it was interesting because, you know, you hear about how Huntington is, it manifests in different ways for different people, dependent upon whether it be CAG or whether it be um, environment or whatever other things that contribute to um, the way someone is progressing. I, I was about at least three people. And in our bedrooms, we had eight bedrooms, so it was three people over the course of the first eight years before my mother came in, um, that, that seemed to be a high number in such a small city with not a high population of people at Huntington. So um, I, I was able to kind of to kind of care for these family members and, um, and see in what different ways I could help them. Some people had a lot of um, like the actual residents themselves were some were combative. Two were combative. The other one was very docile, um, and one had no family, and the other two did. Um, there was a lot of different variables, um, but, but it was a, a great teaching experience. And, um, and then my mother also came in after I had been there for a solid eight years. And um, in order for me to continue working and to care for her um, when her hospice needs increased, I um, was able to move her into the, hair, the care home and I was able to sleep in the room and take care of her 24 and also work. So, um, so yeah, I was, it, was, it was interesting because I had an experience taking care of other people's families with Huntington's until I was in um, hospice care in Santa Barbara.
0: Yeah, and, and I think you just brought up something really, really um, good to talk about is you, you had your mother needed an immense amount of care um, as we all know our loved ones need at the end stages of HD. And, um, I know placing my husband was the hardest thing I've, and I almost felt like a failure and I felt like I can't do this. Yeah. Um, why can't I do this? And I think that there's such a stigma around, um, you know, placing people or, or going into hospice care and, uh, I'll do it myself at home. That's not always the best case scenario. Your loved one is not always getting the best care at home. Um, that a facility can, can offer because these are trained, trained people in the field. Um,
1: and Absolutely. we are, I mean, so I, yeah, I yeah. was able to like go from like caregiver 24 seven in home to like daughter, you know, like, yeah, I did sleep there. Yeah. I did take care of her there, but other people did too. It wasn't like I was literally connected to, to her or anything. So I was able to be daughter yeah. again, which was, it was extremely valuable to me, looking back um, but you're right people people often feel guilty, and this isn't again in the just the h d community this is in the alzheimer's community. this is in so many communities where they need long term care or when they need hospice care and in my particular um, experience i've seen that majority of people feel um, feel guilty and the fact of the matter is, is there isn't a whole lot that people can do about that, except for, you know, talking about it with other people, people who can relate people who understand that feeling and really gaining support and strength from other community members. And um, the, the whole fact of it is, is that care, when you're trying to do 100% of somebody's care you're going to be tired. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to be completely worn out. And if you're trying to do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week with no relief, there's absolutely no way that somebody can get everything they need in advanced stages. Now, that doesn't mean don't do it. It just means that if you can bring in other resources, try and do that. Try and relieve yourself. Try and relieve your loved one so you guys can have a a better relationship even. Um, I know that if yeah. I had the opportunity, like, I would have brought someone in that could, like, hang out with my mom so I could go even run errands by myself and not, you know, feel like I'm stuck to my house. And and the reality is, is that isn't always a possibility for, for people. Um, and I think that the more that we try and focus on delegating and trying to accept help when there is help being offered. I think that's something we could all work on, including myself. I mean, I, I, I was professionally a caregiver and I was very stubborn. I did not want anyone else taking care of my mom because I thought I could do it best. Well, I mean, if I, if I had hours, I could tell you how awful, how awful I did. It was not a good experience um, for either of us or my family. Um, I just think that, Yeah. uh, Yeah. I just think that I think that it's really hard on the guilt. It's really, really hard, especially when you, meaning me, I didn't have, I don't have Huntington's. And so to be her caregiver and to kind of push her off into a care home, I felt, I did feel mass loads of guilt. Um, and as if I was taking the easy way out and, you know, all of those things. But looking back and knowing that I'm going to be doing this for generations and generations to come, um, I know that I will do it differently the next time. And right now I'm, I'm caring for my brother, and we talked about um, care, and I said I would I would keep him out of the care home as long as I could, and that's the only promise I made. I didn't say yeah. that I will never. I just said I'll do it as long as I can. We'll have to work as a team. You know, we'll bring in resources if we can and um, go on from there.
0: And I think that's so important what you just said because I think it's really scary when we make promises. Because I remember making promises to my husband, not knowing right. what end stage of Huntington's was. I just didn't, I didn't understand the immense amount of care he was going to need, and I didn't understand how much I was going to have to to watch him and help him. And you know, I, I think that, you know, of course in the you know mid stage motor manifest. Stages of HD and stuff, we, we can say, Oh, you know, yeah, we're, we're going to keep, you know, we're going to try to care, we're going to care for you from home to the very end in this. Well, the end stage is, I mean, until I got there with my husband, I had, I heard stories. I have friends. I, I saw my friends in end stage HD. I had no clue what it was like to live at home every day with end stage, early right. stage HD. And it's incredibly challenging and it's exhausting. For, for obviously for my husband, it was absolutely exhausting. And for me and my kids and and um I remember, you know, I, I Katrina and I, you know, talked about this when I finally made the decision and I, I contacted Katrina to help me. You know, I had come home, I needed to go grocery shopping to feed Mike and my kids. They had to eat and I ran to the grocery store with the kids and it was a fast trip just to grab something and I came home and Mike was trying to swim. Mike knew he I you know, I thought he knew he oh, it was terrified. I just yeah yeah. I just thought he knew and when I came home he was gasping for air and I was thinking oh my gosh can you imagine if he would have drowned and my kids would have found him or I would have found him or the suffering he would have endured before we got home uh, um, mm-hmm. he needed care and and I was not providing him good care and I I had to come to that realization like Katrina did with her mom and so many other people in our our community has to come to the realization we are not able to offer the care that our loved ones need and and um, and so this is this. I know right. this is a hard subject to talk about, but it is. It's definitely um, something that is, is really pre- prevalent in our community. And and so Katrina, you've seen it all. I know you have because I know you've helped so many families in our community with placement. So let's talk about challenges. The challenges families face.
1: So like like you already mentioned is the guilt. That's the first thing that has to be kind of. Um, dealt with because the decision has to be made it has to be made like okay i'm ready the very first step because that's the biggest step to get to um and and i would say after that it's going to depend on um your area it's going to depend on your family it's going to depend on the support you have the financial status you have the insurance so there's a lot of factors that goes into placement um but i think just familiarizing yourself with some of the, even the terminology and um, the the kind of common discussions that go on um, within <clears throat> when you're talking to people who are in the intake office per se. So I think gathering a list of facilities in your area that, um, you know, will even provide long-term care. I think the, so that in itself is hard. Like in my town, there's two, and they don't even accept most insurances. So it's it's just very challenging to find a place that will accept your insurance. Okay. Now, after you find out if they even accept your insurance, you have to find out if they accept people with Huntington's. And some people will hear that word, and they'll say, no, sorry, no, we don't. We don't accept anyone with hunting, uh, Huntington's. And so you're very much um, – labeled with, with the diagnosis that that our loved ones have or that we have whatever it is very hard to get past sometimes but i think my suggestion is to to not give up and if somebody says you know no we don't take anyone in huntingtons that doesn't mean that the door is shut it just means that it's an opportunity for a conversation and that's a big challenge because some people are not willing but maybe they are maybe they are willing to have um A small education conversation Um, maybe their concern is combative behavior maybe it's anger and aggression etc and so you can ask questions like you know can I ask why you don't accept someone with Huntington's and maybe they'll give you some more information Um, so the challenge is, is to find a care facility that will accept someone with Huntington's that has your that you know takes your insurance and different things like that. But then there's also the age factor. So if your loved one, which, you know, not everyone, but a high percentage of families that are trying to place their loved one, um, the person who needs the care is definitely under 65. Um, and at least in California, you know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with all states and placements, though I've, I've worked with many of you guys, um, on helping you guys with placement. Um, In California, I know that they have a system of of waivers. So every facility is licensed, and um, they are given a certain license. So there isn't really a license for people with Huntington's under the age of 65. There just isn't. So basically, it's like 65 and older and, um, you know, long-term care, end-of-life care, things like that. But they do, they are given, like in Medicare facilities, they are given waivers. There are... It depends on how many beds they have, and um, they're given a certain amount of waivers that allow them to care for people who are under the age of 65. Um, So in knowing this, if if you find a facility that says, yes, we take people with Huntington's, and you guys start a discussion, and then they're like, well, you know, we, we can't take your loved one because they are 40 years old. You, you need to kind of maybe investigate a little bit. Do you guys have waivers for people under 65? And if they say yes, but they're full, then at least you can keep that on your checklist of let's come back to this one because things change. People leave. People pass away. People, you know, their status changes. So continue to keep that, that facility on your list. But always ask about waivers because not, not everyone knows about that, but it really does help. Um, to know when you go into conversation about different placements um, or about different um, questions that you have. So formulate a list of questions that you have for them as far as do they um, allow you to keep your loved one there all the way through hospice. You know, there's a lot of questions that need to be listed and um, gone through, which I know is a little bit more detailed in the Huntington post um, article, which is on our website. And, um, but I do, I do find that the challenges are that there isn't a facility nearby or that the facility does not take someone with Huntington, or that there is age restrictions or, you know, obviously the guilt factor. Um, and I'm sure there's, there's many more challenges that people have faced in, um, you know, trying to place their loved one, but the ones I'm listing are, are the most frequent that I hear about.
0: Yeah, definitely. And then um, one thing I think that was that you told me that I think is so important for people to know is one thing when we, we started the journey of looking at facilities together, um, you said, Katie, I want you to, I don't want you to look at the fancy place. I don't want you to look at, mm-hmm. you know, the nice furniture or the, the, you know, because if they're spending all this time cleaning, 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 are they caring for your loved ones? And, um, and I thought that was really big for, for me because I was looking for that really nice kept place that was going to be this perfect home setting for my husband and I wasn't. So talk a little bit about that because I think that was really, really important that you got that through my head.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I've worked at different types of facilities that have either been strictly for low income or, um, you know, strictly cash pay with, really really good insurance um you know there's been there's different types of 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 facilities and care homes and and things like that but you're right um one thing that i really learned with working in different care homes is the cleanest one was not the one that had the best care um now of course you don't want to walk in and find it filthy because that's unsanitary and all of that but that's not something you should look at that's your first um kind of decision maker when I walk into a facility a care home um I I try and look at the people who work there and if they greet you with warmth and you know say hi and look you in the eyes and um and aren't just hanging around that they that you can tell that they're really engaged with people that they're talking to and that they are um tending to uh, residents who live in the facility. I think that's the most important thing because when you're not there, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it doesn't matter about if they're going to be mopping the floor. It more matters if they're going to be listening to the call out of your loved one saying they're in pain or that they're hungry or things that, that actually matter about care. Um, and, and there's, there are many families that I have helped in and outside of the Huntington's community that have um, have let go of really good opportunities to get some really awesome care um, based on what the outside of the building looked like or the parking lot or um, that it didn't have updated sinks and um, all of these different things when in reality it was the best care in town. Um, so I, I think you're right for bringing that up, Katie. It's just... Um, you have to think about what's best for, and sometimes it's it's just about meeting the people, showing up to the place yeah. and saying hello and getting to know kind of their vibe. Yeah. And I know when I was um,
0: getting ready to place my husband, um, the one thing, you, you know, when we were together and we were looking at homes and we were going down the list and we were calling, um, you know, I think it's, it's, um, I think it's so challenging to decide that, you, that you're going to place your loved one. You go through months and months and months of battling in your head, talking to family members, talking to friends, talking to our community, talking to each other about what you're going to do, and you finally make that decision, okay, it's in my, it's my, in my loved one's best, best, um, you know, the best situation for the family and for them and for, for the caregiver is to place. You make that decision, and then that is the start of, Craziness of people denying mm-hmm. you and saying no and doors shutting on you and and all these different types of homes i Katrina, you did such a good time job explaining that to me compared you know there were so there's different types of homes and different things that each one of them does and um, right but then you know you, you get discouraged because you go and you say, Okay, this is it, and then they say no and they say no, so what advice do you have for our community that are just have been going through the challenges of placing and being denied and denied and denied. What,
1: what, um, um, what yeah, encouraging the, things do you it, have to tell them? Yeah, I think it's really hard. I mean, it's one of the hardest things that I have helped people do because it's not like you're all geared up and like ready for a battle. You're just, you're kind of almost feeling defeated at that point. And some families are different. Some families are like, finally the relief. I, I need this now. I've been needing it for a long time. But majority of us are thinking, oh, my gosh, I just, I can't believe I'm doing this. And so I think that finding people, um, even social workers at um, your local clinics, your lo- local center of excellences, um, I mean, you can even reach out to me. I'm, I'm time-allowing. I, I can help. I'm just not expert in all areas, that's for sure. Um, but I think that you, you can't go through this alone. To do it by yourself is not fair to you. And I think that uh, you need to find your team. You need to find a friend that's even willing to see while you make the phone calls, a friend that's, you know, going to walk in the facility with you, Um, reach out to a social worker who has advice on local facilities, Um, go in and meet the people. Um, and, And sometimes reality is, is that you don't have that much time and it has to happen quickly. And in that event, um, it's going to have to be, you know, you bite the bullet and you really find one solid person that's going to help you through it, and that's most likely going to be um, a social worker. I mean, they they do this well. And um, if you did end up needing assistance in finding a social worker, you're welcome to also um, email me, which all of our emails are our first names, Katrina at help um, And you can email me and I can help with um, – at least trying to connect you to a social worker in your area. But basically my advice to you is don't give up. There is, there is somewhere that your loved one can go. We just have to find it. And so just don't give up and yeah. lean hard on your loved ones. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I, I had no, it's so funny you said, I didn't even think about that. Cause I, I to, about talking about that on the show and that that's a whole nother show in itself, but um, I remember when I, I walked in the first time to the care facility, and, and but my very first one. I, I ended up visiting a, a lot. But I remember sitting in the intake office, and um, my I luckily had my mother with me and my sister. And uh, Katrina had just left. We had gone to some um, – we called all the time, but that was the first meeting. And I sat down, and I had no clue that I was going to lose it. I, I sat there. I walked in strong. I walked in there ready to go. I had my list of questions. I had – all my my information ready to go about my husband's medications. I had everything ready to go, and I walked in, and I sat down, and I just started sobbing, and I was lucky that I was glad I had. First of all, the facility was great because they were incredibly compassionate and and had empathy and stuff to my situation, but um, I had my mom there to cry on and to say, I'm 36 years old, and I'm placing my strong, amazing husband that now is incontinent and is falling and is hurting himself. Like there's this whole whirlwind of emotion that this is a new phase. And, um, right. and it was hard. And, and so I'm really glad you brought that up, Katrina. You can't do this alone. You need a support system. Um, you are your yeah. loved one's support, right? You're getting them, they're giving them care. You're getting them what they need. You're getting them the, you know, what they deserve to be, you know, um, to be cared for and treated right. with respect. You're fighting for that. But who's standing with Katrina? I'm very, very lucky that my <laughs> best friend in this whole world um, knows so much about care homes and HD, and I'm able to, but but we all need someone to lean on, and we all need someone to help us through this because placing your loved one, as many challenges there are, one, the guilt and the the loss and grief through the process, I think, is is some of the hardest things that you're going to walk through. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts before we jump off air?
1: No, I think that, I think that, well, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I'm saying no, but I'm going to, I'm going to say something. But I just think that everyone should just reach out to people and try. I mean, it's really hard to, for me, who who may or may not know you and not know your certain situations, but to try to reach out for support and have conversations about placement, if that's what you think you may be ready for. And let's face it, we, majority of our family members may need that. So let's talk about it early. Let's talk about it now. Let's talk about um, how we can kind of start navigating that and, and get your support team ready.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: You can always get a hold of all of us. Like Katrina
0: said, our emails are our first names and um, at helpforhd.org. Katrina's is K A T R I N A at H E L P, the number four, hd.org. Um, and so I am uh, thankful that we have Katrina and thankful for doing this show. You guys can also read more of um, some things that Katrina was talking about with um, challenges of, um, of placing our loved ones on the Huntington's Post. To get to the Huntington's Post, you just go to www.help4hd.org and you go to the Huntington's Post tab on the top and you will see all the recent articles. There's some about placement. There's some about – one just came out about purity um, and those kinds because that's another challenge we face is getting our loved ones their benefit. Absolutely. Um, So – uh, article just came out about that as well as some of it. And I would go back even to some of the challenging symptoms associated with HD that were written about in the month of May. They're really good articles. Um, so I think that that is it for now. Always remember Help for HD. We are here for you guys. If you guys need us, we are a email or phone call away. Uh, we are here to support our community and um, uh, in any way we possibly can. We're living this as well every day. Um, So we understand um, the challenges we're facing in so many different spaces. So if we can help in any way, support you through those challenges, we are here. Next week, tune in at 1 o'clock, same time, same place. We're going to talk to Global Genes. They are a nonprofit that serves rare disease communities. Uh, We are going to talk to Angie, their COO over there, and see what's going on at Global Genes. And then the following week, we're going to talk to um, Cole uh, from Hope's. So that's uh, the the group in Stanford that has a whole bunch of resources for Huntington's disease families. So um, I I think that's it. I think we can wrap up the show for for now. Um, Until next week, everyone have a safe week.